I'd like to draw your attention to our reading from Acts this morning. It's a great story, a short story. With just a few strokes of the pen, Luke gives us a great picture of the scene. There are little details in the story that remind us that this is a real story. It's about a real man who meets a real savior. We're given the throwaway line that Philip hears the Ethiopian reading. It's a reminder to us that in the ancient world, um, when people read something, they usually read aloud. That was the common pattern. Um, As far as I know, the first mention of someone reading silently is in St. Augustine's Confessions. In the fifth century, he meets Bishop Ambrose of Milan, and he's astounded that the man reads without moving his lips or speaking out loud. He says his mouth is silent. Not only does he notice this, he is bothered by it. It bugs him. He goes on for page after page, at least three pages. Um, Why does he do that? Why doesn't he speak the words that he's reading? He he must have some reason for doing this, and and he's puzzled by it. I just throw that out to you because this is a real situation here. It's a reminder that this is a real man in a real situation, and Philip leads him to the Lord. The first word in our reading this morning is the word now. And so now leads us to ask the question, well, when? The three most important things to remember in Bible reading. Does anybody remember them? Thank you. If you get one thing out of my pastoral ministry, get that. The same as real estate. Location, location, location. First location in place uh, uh, and in a culture, all right, um, with rules and social standards and all those kinds of things. Uh, Location in time before or after something, and then the most important of all, location in place in Scripture, the location in Scripture. Acts 8, where our reading comes from, follows a story that Luke tells us. He tells it to us in hints and dribbles. He doesn't tell us a full story because it's a painful event in the church's history. Right at the very start, there's a division. And that division is those who say that Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews and those who say that Jesus is the Messiah for the world. And it's the apostles who haven't caught on yet that the gospel is for everyone. Jesus had told them, go into Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the disciples heard that and they thought, oh, we're supposed to go to Jerusalem, make sure all the Jewish people know that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we're supposed to go to Samaria and see if there are any Jewish people there. And we're supposed to tell them that Jesus is their Messiah. And then we're supposed to go to Polynesia and get off our boat and go up to somebody and say, are there any Jewish people around here? Because we need to tell them that Jesus is their Messiah. The split is most evident in Acts chapter 6. There's the names of parties within the church. The Hebrews, who say that Christ is for the, the Messiah for the Jewish people, and the Hellenists, who say that Messiah is for everyone. It's that proclamation of the Hellenist party that Stephen makes in a sermon in chapters uh, 6 and 7 of Acts, which ticks off the Jewish leaders and apparently ticks off the apostles as well because he says everything that's gone before is fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus is now the Messiah for the whole world. And on that day, we're told in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, on that day, on that day that Stephen is executed, there's persecution in the church. Luke tells us everyone in the church was driven from Jerusalem, comma, except the apostles. 
Paul goes all the way to Damascus hunting down Christians when the apostles are still in Jerusalem. Why doesn't Paul get upset about the apostles? Well, they have a disagreement over who the Messiah is, but the rest of the church has a disagreement about who the Messiah is for. Well, Philip is one of these Hellenists. He's the first to pick up that Stephen in his sermon had mentioned Samaria twice. He remembers Jesus told us before he ascended to go to Jerusalem and then to Samaria. So he heads to Samaria. This is not the Apostle Philip. This is Deacon Philip. And he has a fruitful ministry there. Samaritans are coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah for them too. And when Jerusalem hears this, that Samaritans believe that Jesus is their Messiah, they can't believe it. They send Peter and John down to investigate. They say, this can't be. Jesus is the Messiah for the Jewish people. Well now, well now we get to the now of Acts 8, 26. Philip is ministering in Samaria when an angel of the Lord appears to him and says to go to the south. He leaves Samaria to the northern part of Israel and he takes the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And on that road, he happens to meet an Ethiopian eunuch. Now first, that word Ethiopia in the ancient world was a much broader term than just the nation we think of as Ethiopia today. We're told um, that this is a servant of Candace. Candace is the title, actually, of the, the queen of Cush. Cush is basically where Sudan is today, just below Egypt. If you remember back to sixth grade geometry class, that's Upper Egypt, which is in the south of Egypt. They only did that to trick you, right? Because you want to think Upper Egypt's in the north, but it's the lay of the land, it's higher elevation, and so it's called Upper Egypt, but it's the south, it's, it's the Sudan. In Homer's Iliad, um, some Ethiopians come to join in the, the fight at Troy, and Homer says they come from Ethiopia, the end of the earth. Ring a bell, Jerusalem, Samaria, the end of the earth. Figuratively now, the gospel is coming to the Cushite people and to this one Ethiopian eunuch. He's a castrated man. He's a eunuch. Eunuchs we find all over the ancient world, or at least a lot of it. It wasn't all that long ago that it was common. The last eunuch of the Chinese court died in 1996. Amazing. I found out a lot about eunuchs this week, much more than I want to know. <laughs> Trust me. Um, eunuchs were men who held power. He holds a lot of power. He's in charge of the, 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 the treasury of the entire kingdom of Cush, we're told. I take it that's probably more powerful than even the secretary of the treasury today. Why are castrated men giving, given power? Well, there's the seventh grade boy level, okay, so to avoid messing with the women in the harem, okay, we got that. Uh, but the real reason is much more serious. It has more to do with power and heredity than it does with the harem. The royalty has power, the royalty has complete power, but the royalty can't manage everything. That power has to be distributed to those lower down. And that power is distributed only to those who are loyal. Only those who are willing to accept at least the, re the, the physical reality 
that they have to give up their ambitions. In the ancient world, to have ambitions was to have a family, to have children, and to make a name for yourself. All over the Old Testament, we read about those who want to make a name for themselves. That name is not their own name. It's their family name, the name of their children. You see, in the ancient world, you can have power or you can have children, but you can't have both. And in many parts of the ancient world, we find the same idea. You can have power, but you can't have children. If you're going to be trusted with the highest power, the treasury of the entire kingdom, then you have to give up any hope of having children. Royalty, you see, can have both, and they're supposed to have both. You'll not be able to establish your own dynasty. You won't have a name. To have power, you have to prove your loyalty, your lack of ambition. And you have to accept, one way or the other, the fact that you've been sexually mutilated, that you've been castrated. In some ancient societies, this was voluntary. In others, it was involuntary. I told you I learned a lot more than I want to know. This man is trustworthy. He's proven that he's trustworthy. And so now he has power. But he still wants something. No matter how powerful he is, he's lacking something. He's empty. He's spiritually hungry. We know this because he's taken a trip of a thousand miles to come to Jerusalem to worship. Somehow this Cushite man has heard of the God of Israel. And how has he heard? Well, there's lots of speculation. But somehow he's heard that there are these people who worship one God. And they have a temple in Jerusalem where they worship one God. And this powerful man takes a thousand mile trip to Jerusalem to worship And this is crucial. And Luke's readers would know this immediately. This is crucial. He's spiritually hungry. He desires some connection to the God of Israel. He desires something that his power and his wealth don't provide to him. He has an emptiness in his life that he wants God to fill. He travels a thousand miles to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. And he's turned away. He's not allowed to worship God. In fact, he can't even come close to the temple. And why is this? It's a law. The law of Moses. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. No man whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Two other passages in Leviticus make it clear that no sexually mutilated man can even go near the tabernacle, later the temple, not even into the court of the Gentiles where Gentiles were allowed to come in and kind of listen and learn about God. Not even into the court of the Gentiles can this man come. This man travels a thousand miles to worship God and he's turned away at the gate. The very thing that he had to accept in order to gain power now separates him from the God he's so desperately hungry for. He's accepted the fact of his sexual mutilation in exchange for power. Well, that's the trade-off. 
And now I can't imagine to begin, can't begin to imagine how devastated, broken, and wounded he must feel. He's a man who doesn't fit in back home. He's gone to worship God, and he's told that he doesn't fit in. I can't begin to imagine how disfigured he must view even his own body, disgusted he must be with his own body, disgraced as he realizes that what he had exchanged for power now blocks his access to God. But he's convinced it doesn't. And that's the interesting part. He doesn't give up. He desperately needs God. He wants God. He hungers for God. He's gone to where he's been told he can find out about God and he's been turned away. Despised and rejected by men. But he's convinced that somehow God can accept him. He's convinced of this. No matter what the law says, no matter what the people at the temple say the rules are, he's convinced that God will accept him somehow, in some way, by some means. Now, how can I say this? How do I know that this man is convinced that God will accept him? I know this because he's reading Isaiah. He's reading the part of Isaiah that's sometimes called the servant scrolls about this servant. And what does Isaiah have to say? Well, we know that when Philip comes up to the man, the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, just a turn of the page in our Bible, just a roll of the scroll, maybe even on the same scroll, is this passage from Isaiah. Let not the foreigner, this is from Isaiah chapter 56, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The eunuch reads this and says, wait a second, I went all the way up there to Jerusalem and they told me I had to be separated from God. But this book says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people and let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree, a tree that doesn't bear fruit. This eunuch is sitting there in the chat chariot. He's reading this and he says, wait a second. The people up there in Jerusalem told me I couldn't come in to worship God. But this, whatever who's broke this said, even the eunuch says, don't say, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and hold fast his covenants. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
The Lord God who gathers the outcasts declares, I will gather others besides those already gathered. Who in the world is Isaiah talking to besides this foreigner who's a eunuch looking for God? Who's just been turned away from God's house? But Isaiah says to the eunuchs who choose the things that please me, I will give in my, in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The eunuch must be saying to himself, something's going on here. This Isaiah guy is speaking directly to me, but I don't understand it. I'm a foreigner, I'm a eunuch, there can't be anything much clearer speaking to me, but I don't understand it. And I can picture him, and he keeps reading and rereading and thinking and thinking and reading. And he comes over and over again to this passage in Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Can you imagine a eunuch reading this? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? He has left behind no children. Who can describe his generation? His name's been left wiped out because he left behind no children. Isaiah talks about a man here who voluntarily submits to humiliation, who voluntarily accepts a life without children, and you think the eunuch can identify with this guy? And can you imagine now why that eunuch asks, who is this? Is he talking about himself, or is he talking about someone else? And along comes Philip. And says, he's talking about someone else. At the once, on the one hand, the most elsest person who's ever walked on earth. And on the other hand, someone who gave all of this for you. Who is this guy? And up comes Philip. Running alongside the chariot. Do you understand what you're reading? No. Who is this guy? And Philip says, it's Jesus. Jesus became like you so that you could become like him. He became cursed so that you would no longer be cursed. He died so you could live. And he's tearing down the wall that separates you from God. And the eunuch goes home rejoicing. Is there any better picture of someone finding a new identity in Christ becoming a new create creature where old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And in an afternoon, this man finds Jesus and he goes home rejoicing. Is there any better picture of someone finding a new identity in Christ? Well, maybe it's the picture of you living a life where you become a new creature, where old things have passed away, where all things are made new. Because Jesus became like you so you could become like him. He became cursed so that you would no longer be cursed. And he died so you could live. And he tears down the wall 
between us and God. In Jesus' name, amen.